Our Father, we thank You for uh, this Word that we hold in our hands, an unalterably righteous and true Word. There is not one word here that is incorrect or invalid. It is a true word, and it is a word that we need. And in this, in this book, we find everything that we need for living life and being godly. And Father, would you take this book that we hold in our hands and apply it to our hearts this morning? For we need this infallible, inerrant word to transform and change us. We need transformation from those who have an inclination towards sin. Even once redeemed, our hearts are prone to wander away from You. Our hearts are prone to be self-reliant. Our hearts are prone to deceive us about what is good for us. And Father, would You, would you change us by this book? And Father, would you, would you give me clarity this morning, accuracy, and joy with this book that you have given us? And Father, as we come one, one last time to this great passage, with this, with this word in Romans chapter 8, change us to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I go to the mountains, one of the things I do is um, like to go and take pictures and kind of wander around and just see the majesty and the greatness and the bigness of the mountains and what God has created. And when, when, when we leave the mountains, the morning, the morning that we leave, I like to get up early and then, and then take a few minutes and just wander back outside and as the sun is just preparing to rise to get one last view of the mountains that I love. And then we pack up the van or pack up the car and we get in the car and we begin making our way out and right before we make one last turn that will obscure the mountains from my view, I'll, I'll slow the car down and, and generally even stop and take a view back over my shoulder at the mountains I so dearly love. When I was in Tel Aviv a few weeks ago, Dan Kirk and I walked down on the last night that we were in Israel to the Mediterranean Sea. It was about a three-block walk from our hotel. And we walked out onto a pier. And there, um, right before sunset, we watched the sun slowly make its way down to the bottom of the horizon. And, and I found myself taking picture after picture of the sun as it slowly makes its descent underneath the horizon until finally it was completely gone. And then we turned and made our way and went back to the hotel. When I finish reading a book, I will often, uh, before I take the book and put it on my shelf, I'll, I'll flip back through the pages of that book and, and kind of see some of the places where I've highlighted and some of the things I've written in the margins and, and just relive the delight that that book was to me while I was reading it. I guess you could just say I'm nostalgic, perhaps even pathetically so. I just, 
I just don't want to miss anything of the beauty of the things that I have seen and experienced. I want to fully capture the memories that I have created and, and, and burn them into my mind to remember them. And today, our friends, is our corporate nostalgic look at Romans chapter 8. This chapter sits in the middle of one of the most beloved books of Scripture. It is the pinnacle of the section that speaks about the sanctification of the believer. One 17th century pastor said of this chapter, If the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, then chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. Pastor Charles Trumbull wrote of this section, The eighth of Romans has become particularly precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between, no defeat. Ray Ortland has summarized this chapter by writing, Here in Romans 8, there is refreshment enough for dry and thirsty believers. We began our examination of this great chapter Anybody want to guess? Almost nine months ago, exactly to the day, at the beginning of August. Yes, it was still hot, and it were about to be hot again when we started that. Twenty sermons ago, this is sermon number 20 in this chapter. And this morning, I want to take one more look at it. Before we, before we put this chapter, so to speak, in our rearview mirror, I want us to, to sink down and revel again in the greatness that is in this Word. What does, what does Paul teach us in this chapter? He teaches us that the grace of God that gives salvation to the believer also gives him the Spirit and His sanctifying and securing power. The grace of God brings salvation and with salvation brings the Spirit and with the Spirit sanctifies us and secures us in our salvation. We can say that the believer is inhabited by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit, and secured by the Spirit. In fact, we might just say it this way. The spiritual life is the Spirit life. It is Spirit-driven, Spirit-compelled, Spirit-controlled. And it is that Spirit-driven life that I want to look at again with you this morning from Romans chapter 8, beginning first by examining what I'm calling some highlights of the Holy Spirit's work. This is, not, this is not everything that the Holy Spirit does. This is not the totality of the work of the Spirit. But, but this is a, a, a large window into the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. The Spirit of God is, is central in this chapter. The Spirit is mentioned by name 20 times in this chapter in 14 different verses. So a number of the verses refer to Him directly by name, multiple numbers of times. The Spirit dominates this ultimate chapter on sanctification because the Spirit dominates the process of sanctification. There is no sanctification without the working of the Spirit, and this chapter particularly highlights that reality. So what can we say about the Spirit from this chapter? What does this chapter reveal to us about the work of the Spirit? First of all, verses 1 and 2, He has removed our condemnation. He has removed our condemnation. Now, if you remember chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, talk about the difficulty in the life of the believer, that the, that the believer, even though he has been transferred from the domain of Adam into the domain of Christ, even though he's been moved from death into life, 
he still has the flesh and he still has a propensity to sin. And there's, there's this constant tension within him that he is battling against sin. And some who are weak-minded might think, because I have this ongoing battle with the flesh, that God still is displeased with me, that, that I'm still in some way underneath the discipline of God or the judgment of God or the condemnation of God, that God still wants to pour His wrath out on me. And to that, the Apostle says, therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how is it that we get to have no condemnation, and how is it that we get to be in Christ Jesus? Verse 2, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, the Spirit who is life, the Spirit who is life, the Spirit who contains life, the Spirit who grants life, beginning in in creation and and making creation come alive, and then in recreation, making people to come alive again in regeneration to Jesus Christ. The Spirit who has life and is life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So it's the Spirit of God who regenerates us, who brings us to life, who places us in Christ and connects us to Jesus Christ. We see that same principle in verse 6 of chapter 7. We have been released, he says, from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So the Spirit comes and He grants to us a new way to live. We don't live according to the flesh as before. We don't live according to the law as before. But now we live according to the Spirit. And friends, we must remember We were under condemnation. There was condemnation. There was judgment. God did have wrath reserved for us. But now, because of the work of the Spirit, the sentence of death that was over us has been removed and we have been liberated eternally. There is no condemnation because of the work of the Spirit. He has also given us a new way to live. Verse 4. In verse 4, he talks about those who walk and, and those who live. That little phrase, um, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that word, little phrase, walk according to the flesh, walking simply refers to living or the pattern of life or the way we live. And he's, he's simply using an analogy for, for how we live our lives. And he said previously... When we were in the flesh, we walked and lived our lives according to the flesh. We, we lived by the way that only the flesh could live in us. And now he says, we walk according to the Spirit. We walk in a new way, in a, a fresh way. And, and the way we live now is so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We we walk and live in a way that the law's requirements are being fulfilled in us. Now, he does not mean by that that now you live so that you have to fulfill the law, so that you can justify yourself, so that you can be right before God because of, because of what you do. No, he's not saying that. The law demonstrated no one can make himself righteous on his own. 
But what he is saying is that because we have the Spirit, now we can live according to the Spirit. And one of the things that the Spirit does is that the Spirit equips us so that we can begin to do some of the things that the law required us to do and even do them increasingly, or we would say progressively, moving towards Christ in Christ-likeness. Progressive sanctification. He's given us a new way to live so that we can perform deeds of obedience that are pleasing to the Lord, that are honoring to the Lord, that manifest that the Lord is controlling us and we are not living any longer according to the flesh. We might say it this way, our obedience to God is a Spirit-controlled and Spirit-empowered manifestation that the Spirit is living within us. We now have a new way to live, a way of obedience. And we can do that only because the Spirit of God has come to reside within us. He's removed our condemnation. He's given us a new way to live. Verses 5 and 6, He's given us a new way to think. Remember what? Remember um, how you used to think? Do you, you ever, you ever um, stop and, 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 and think about the kinds of things that used to captivate you? The th- kinds of thoughts that used to compel you? How, how would you finish the sentence? I used to think that... I, I'll tell you a couple of ways I used to think. I used to think that being a garbage man was the coolest job in the world. <laughs> That's a man who made some money being a garbage man. I, I, I remember my, my parents bought me little toy garbage trucks and I used to fill them with Rice Krispies and go around the kitchen dropping and picking up Rice Krispies and um, pretending that I was a garbage man. I could think of nothing better than being a garbage man when I, when I grew older. When the garbage man would come through our neighborhood, I would sit at the front window waiting for him to come by and watch him. And I was just hoping, every time he'd come by, I remember hoping that he would not only dump our trash, but that he would push the button and all these cool hydraulics would come and just crush the trash. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And, and if you're a garbage man, you get to ride on the outside of the vehicle and hang on. I didn't realize that they were at the south end of the vehicle <laughs> and what was happening with the odor that was coming from that and the odor that was coming from the crushing of all the trash. But, but I used to think that was the coolest thing in the world. I used to think, as I began to understand how economics worked and and particularly how family economics worked, I used to think that dad was getting ripped off bigger than anybody else. I mean, he was the only one in our house that went out to work. And then when he came home from work, then he paid all these bills. And if we went out and if we did anything, he had to pay for everybody else in the family. And I'm thinking, it's your money. Why can't you get to use it the way you want to? Amen. (laughs) Not knowing that it's a joy to do that. A joy to care for your family. I used to think that that when I would graduate, even when I was in master's, um, working on my master's degree, I used to think that when I would graduate, I would walk across the stage... And in the middle of the stage, they would give me my degree. And at the end of the stage, when I came off it, they would give me a job. Yeah, 
That's what I found out. Doesn't work, quite work that way, does it? We used to think in different kinds of ways, and, and those ways mature and change and transform. And the same is true when we come to Christ. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. When you are not in Christ, everything you think is fleshly. And it's fleshly in one of two ways. Either, either you're oriented towards sin and everything you want is sin, or you want righteousness, but everything that you try to do in order to be righteous is your work to attain righteousness on your own. And that's working by the power of the flesh. And Paul says everything that the mind did before Christ is set on the things of the flesh. But now, once we are in the Spirit, He gives us a new way to think, and our thoughts and our minds are focused on the Spirit. Our, our whole world view has changed. We've, we've been given a new way to think. Our minds are fixed so that we can think in ways that honor God and demonstrate that the, the flesh no longer controls us. We can think right thoughts that are preoccupied with God and, and in submission to Him. And as a result, notice verse 6, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. He gives us new life and He gives us peace with God. So, so we have full transformation that comes through this renewed kind of thinking. He also, verse 9, indwells all believers. Notice in verse 9, However, you are not in, the not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, when he says the Spirit of God dwells in you, he's not talking about space and he's not talking about location. Um, but he, be, and, and we know that in part because the Spirit is a spirit and not a bodily form. God in all the triune Godhead, all members of the Trinity are spirit. Uh, Christ took on flesh, but in His deity, pre-incarnate deity, He was spirit. And so He's not talking about the spirit physically inhabiting our body, but He is talking um, about the Spirit living with us. That, that, that word in us, so if He dwells in us, that word in can be translated with or by. And He simply means that the Spirit is living alongside us, with us, controlling us, compelling us, directing us, and guiding us. He is always providing authority and control over our lives. And... And He is constantly with us. Remember what Jesus said about the Spirit of God in John chapter 14, right before He goes to the cross. And he's reminding the disciples of some of the things He's going to do for them. He says in John 14:16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. So He will come alongside and, and dwell with you and participate with you and direct you always. It's not like the Spirit of God comes and then He leaves and then He comes back for a while and then He leaves for a while and then He comes back and He leaves. No, He is with you forever, perpetually guiding and directing our lives. The Spirit of God indwells us such that He lives in us to change us and transform us. In fact, 
verses 10 and 11 tell us that He is empowering our lives. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit, and I take the word Spirit there, should be capitalized as a reference to the Holy Spirit, yet the Spirit is life. Again, a better translation than the word alive is the word life. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. But the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, so the Spirit who is life comes to reside with us, alongside us, or to use the picture Paul uses, in us, perpetually to transform us to look like Christ. He empowers our living. And and he says in verse 10, He is life. And we have that life from Him because of, verse 10 says, righteousness. So we have been declared to be righteous. We have been declared to be just. And as part of that process, we receive the Spirit who is life. And, and that life now, that life of the Spirit now compels us and works its power in us and through us. And Paul's point in verse 11 is that, that that life that comes from the Spirit is so powerful that it raised Christ from the dead. And he is, he is saying that in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the Spirit has done the greatest thing. And if He has done the greatest thing, then certainly He can do the lesser thing of changing and transforming your life. To have the Spirit of God is to have transformational power with you at all times. I want you to notice something else in verses 9 and 10, though. Notice he says, the first reference to the Spirit in verse 9, he calls Him the Spirit of God. And then the end of verse 9, he calls Him the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, he doesn't talk about the Spirit being in us, but notice he says, if Christ is in you. And here he's, he's drawing attention to the fact that while there is distinction between the Spirit and Christ, he's not saying Christ is the Spirit, and he's not saying the Spirit is Christ, but he is saying that there is a union between them, a union that comes from the triunity of God, and, and when the Spirit comes, He brings Christ. In other words, when the Spirit of Christ comes, it is, my brothers, as if Christ is with you every moment of every day. One of the things that was captivating to me when, when I went to Israel um, a few weeks back, uh, one, one day we went up to Capernaum in the, at the north of, of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Christ was based for much, much of His ministry. And, and as you read the, the New Testament, it's tempting to think about, well, Capernaum's this big city and maybe even imagining something like, like Granbury or something, that, that this is where Christ lived and operated. But friends, you've got you to scale it down just a little bit from that. We sit on a piece of property at this church, about six acres, give or take a little bit. We're about six acres. If you take our six acres and divide it by three, that's two acres. I'm, I'm really good at math. Two acres is the size of the city of Capernaum. So when it talks, when it talks about Jesus entering the city and somebody approaching him in the city, and then, and then he 
goes to Peter's house from that, that's like a 30-second walk from the border of town to Peter's house. And then when it says he leaves Peter's house and goes to the synagogue, now he's leaving Peter's house and he's going north to the synagogue. That's about a 45-second walk. And if he wants to leave the synagogue and go to the Sea of Galilee, that's, that must be at least like a minute and a half walk. And, 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 and what's interesting is, that, is, is the proximity and the closeness. You, you see the layout of the city, and in a room this size, there were probably somewhere between 20 and 40 dwellings, houses. And so you say, well, I want to... I wonder what Jesus thinks about, well, all you have to do is, is go across the, across the room here and, and there you're at Jesus and talking to him. It's not like, it's not like, well, I wonder what Jesus thinks. So I guess maybe, maybe I'll see him, you know, in the next few days as I, as I run across him. No, friends, their, their lives were in, integrally intertwined. There was proximity and closeness to Christ. And friend, if you have the Spirit, you have an even greater proximity to Christ than that. He is with you always, every day. He is not only with you, but He is empowering you. Christ is equipping you, changing you, transforming you, giving you an ability to live. And He does that in a very particular way. He not only empowers us, but He empowers our mortification with sin. Could you agree with me that our greatest problem is our own sin? The problems that we have are not the problems around us and outside of us. The problems are the problems that we have inside of us. And the Spirit comes to help us to mortify, to kill, to put to death, to stop sinning. If you are living according to the flesh, verse 13... You must die. If, if you live your life to the flesh and you never deviate from that, you don't change course, then you will die eternally. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Paul says here, uh, you, you not only must mortify the deeds of the flesh, but you will never do it by yourself, but the Spirit has been given to you so that you can. By the Spirit, you are putting to, the de- putting to death the deeds of the body. You, you can put to death the deeds of the body, not on your own. Well, friend, if you're trying to, to get rid of sin on your own without accessing what the Spirit of God comes to give you, you'll never succeed. But, oh, friend, if you access what the Spirit gives you, then you can put to death the deeds of the body. This week I was reading a new book by Tony Renke entitled Competing Spectacles. In that book he says this, We humans don't merely have habits. We are habits, said Jonathan Edwards. Therefore, most of life is not first deliberated at the conscious level and then acted out. Rather, the only hope for the sanctification of our habits and loves is the Spirit. He must awaken His transforming power deep inside us and open our eyes to behold the splendor of Christ. So in his sermon on 2 Corinthians 3.18, Edwards says this, 
The glory of Christ is such that is that it is of a transforming nature. It's of a powerful nature. It changes all that behold it into the same image. It reaches into the bottom of the heart to the most inner soul. It is a sight that purifies and beautifies. Only the grand spectacle of Jesus Christ can reach to the bottom of our loves and longings with power to shape us into something that is whole and beautiful. And friends, that is exactly what the Spirit of God does when He mortifies sin alongside our obedience. He empowers our mortification. Verses 14 to 16, He is uniting us in sonship to the Father. Notice verse 15, He says, You have not just received a spirit of slavery leading to fear fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Or more literally, you have received the spirit of adoption. So the Spirit comes, and He is the one who puts us in union with the Godhead so that God becomes our Father and we become His sons. We don't just feel adopted. We don't just have a sense that we are adopted. My friends, we are adopted with all of the rights and the privileges of that adoption. One of the things that that used to um, excite me most about being, about being a dad is, is when the children were little and they would come to, to visit me. Regine would, would bring them by. Maybe she was running some errands and just stopping by. I knew the instant that, that they were on, on the property or, or in, in the building because that front door would open up and I would hear the thunder of little feet coming towards my office and I would, I would hear the bang of the outside door of my office go against the wall as they went running through it and then I'd see my office door go flying open. Daddy! I just love that. That's, I, I love where they are in life right now but that's one of the things I miss. And they had, they had access to me and I loved for them to take advantage of that access and to come into my office with such excitement. I can't wait to see Daddy. My friends, that's our fellowship with the Father. He's not just a cold and aloof Father who gives us begrudgingly what we need. He is our Daddy. And and we can, as it were, crawl into His lap and receive the comfort and peace, provision, care, and protection that only a daddy can give. And not only that, but he says, verse 17, we are heirs, not just heirs, but we are fellow heirs with Christ. We, we gain an inheritance alongside Christ. Friends, we have all the rights and privileges that that adoption to the Father gives us, and that happens only because the Spirit is the one who binds us to the Father through Jesus Christ. He is as well, verse 23, the guarantee of our salvation. Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons of redemption of our body. So, so our bodies don't work right. Is that, is that true for, for you as well? Like things, things go wrong in your body, things go wrong in your life. There, there are things that happen that are, that are, that are somewhat difficult this week. Um, 
Everything was going along swimmingly, and then all of a sudden I felt like I was swimming in this sea of confusion. I was sitting at my desk Tuesday afternoon, and the room just started doing this with me. And I got all lightheaded. Be assured, it's no longer doing that, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I was, I was just overwhelmed by this dizziness. And then it just was persistent. I called Regine and, and told her what was going on. She said, wait there. Uh, Emily and I will come up and get you. You don't need to be driving. And so she drove me home, and then middle of the night, woke up at 3 in the morning, and still, while I'm laying in bed, the room is just spinning and out of control. Um, what, what's going on? Our, our bodies just don't function the way that, that they were designed to function. They start breaking down, and things don't happen as well as, as, as they could and as well as they should. And, and all kinds of other things happen in our world as well. People sin against us and we sin against them. And we long for and we desire, verse 23, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We want this transformation. We want this change. We, we want the new body and we want the new life and friends, the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that we will get what has been promised. Notice verse 23, he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is the first fruit. Now, back in that culture, if, if they had a harvest that they, were, that they were gleaning, they would go out when the first things are coming in, they would glean from that harvest, and then they would take those first cuttings and they would take them to the temple or to the synagogue and they would offer them in worship. And, and they would say, Lord, we, we trust You that You're going to give us more because this is everything that we've gotten so far and if You don't provide more, we're going to go hungry. But here in this verse, the worshiper is not coming and giving something to God. The worshiper is coming to God and God is giving something to Him. God gives the worshiper the Spirit as a first fruit to say, this is the down payment, the rest is coming. And if you have the Spirit, you can be sure that you will have the rest of the salvation that has been promised to you. Not only is He our guarantee for salvation, but He is helping us all through life, particularly by praying for us. So verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. And what's our weakness? For we do not know how to pray as we should. So we have circumstances in life and we just say, I don't know what to pray. I'm stuck and I, I don't know what to say. And the Spirit helps that weakness. And specifically, He tells us at the end of verse 26, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit, who is a member of the Godhead, goes to God the Father and takes our prayers along with Him and corrects those prayers and prays according to the will of God because he says, uh, verse 27, the Spirit knows what the mind, or, excuse me, um, God knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He, he intercedes praying for us what God's will is for us. So I don't know what to pray. I don't know what God's will is. But the Spirit knows what God's will is, and that's what He prays for us. Friends, we have all the help we need with the Spirit of God. Everything we need, He has given to us. Now, I want you to notice something else. Verse 27, 
is the last reference to the Spirit by name in this chapter. So the first 27 verses, we have 20 direct references to the Spirit of God. Verses 28 to 39, He's no longer named by name. But friends, everything that happens in verses 28 to 39 that relates to our security, to our justification, to uniting us to Jesus Christ is based on the Spirit's work. So He's not named in verses 28 to 39, but everything that's going on in those verses builds on the work that the Spirit is doing on our behalf. This is the Spirit of God that you and I have been given. Now secondly, I want you to see very quickly six implications from the Spirit's work. What, what, are, sim- what are six implications that we can draw from the Spirit working on our behalf. First of all, live by His power. Live by His power. That's back in verse 4. What's interesting about this chapter is that there are no imperatives in this chapter. Paul, Paul is not overtly calling us to do anything. He doesn't say, because this is true, then you must. But he is filling our minds in this chapter with significant truths about the Godhead and the Spirit in particular and how God relates to us through the Spirit. And what He would have us to do is to fill our minds with those truths, to orient our thinking in new ways. He wants us to meditate on the truth of our position in Christ. He wants us to meditate on things that are above, as He says in Colossians 3.2. And He wants us to think particularly on the things of the Spirit. My friends, if you want to be changed, this chapter needs to grab a hold of your attention and you must meditate on it and think on it and dwell on it and cultivate a mind that is fixated on the truths of the, this chapter. It is my observation that those who live in weak and lowly ways live in weak and lowly ways because they have weak and lowly meditation on God. What we need in order to live well is, in order, is to think well first. Where have you set your mind? He's going to say in verse 5, or verse 4 rather, he says that we, we can live in a new way. But friends, that living in a new way is foundationally built on thinking in a new way. Do not walk, he says, according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit, verse 4, because those, verse 5, who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If you want to live, verse 4, then you need to think, verse 5. In order to live according to Christ, in order to live according to the Spirit, According to Christ, you must live and think according to the Spirit. Verse 5. Live by His power. Secondly, alongside that, set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on Christ. The Spirit's job is to point the believer to Jesus Christ. The Spirit never exalts Himself, but He always exalts Christ. That's 1 John chapter 4. We know that the Spirit is working when Christ is preeminent. So we need to fill our minds with Christ and His work on the cross for us. Notice verses 9 to 11, and we've already drawn attention to this, that there's this interplay between Christ and the Spirit. And so to set our minds on the Spirit is to set our minds on Christ. To think in a Spirit-controlled, Spirit-guided way, we think about Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, 
Stop filling your eye gates with the world's vision for you and begin to fill your eye gates with the vision of Christ. As Ranky writes in his book, Competing Spectacles, our movies and television dramas present a view of the world where God is inconsequential. Thus, Pastor David Platt's warning is necessary. You don't become like Christ by beholding TV all week. And you don't become like Christ by beholding the Internet all week. You don't become like Christ when you fill your life with the things of this world. You become like Christ when you behold the glory of Christ and expose your life moment by moment to His glory all through God's revelation in Scripture. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you want this transforming work of the Spirit, you must fill your mind with Christ. Thirdly, work hard against sin. Work hard against sin. This, is, this chapter is about the Spirit's work on our behalf, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to fight against sin. The spiritual life is synergistic. That means that, that the Spirit works and we work in conjunction with the Spirit. We, we don't have a right to say, well, well, I tried to fight against that sin. I didn't want to do that sin, but God never took that desire away, and so I guess, I guess really God didn't want me to change. Well, friends, I've had people say things or things like that to me way too many times. Friend, you you must know that, that God does want you to change and God has given the Spirit of God so that you can change, but it's not just the Spirit of God who's working. You and I also must work. And what must you do? We must identify our sinful tendencies What are the inclinations of my heart? What are the longings of my heart? Where and when am I predisposed to sin? Where and when will I make unwise choices? Where does my heart go and where does my mind go when it is time to go wherever it wants to go? We say, I do what I do because I want what I want and I want what I want because I believe what I believe. So what is... What, it, what are my actions revealing about my desires and what are my desires revealing about my belief system? Now, all of us in this room would probably give a, a relatively orthodox theology, something that would be right and true and consistent. I'm not interested in, in what, your, what your words are. I want, you to know what, I want to know what your functional theology is. What do you really do? When you, when you act, you're revealing what you really believe. Um, and, 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 and we want to have that exposed. We want to know what, where our tendencies are to go against God, and then we want to eliminate those. And we eliminate those by setting our mind against the flesh. That's verse 5. We don't set our mind on the flesh. We set our mind on the things of the Spirit. And to set our mind on the things of the Spirit is to set our mind against the things of the flesh. And brothers and sisters, you have to hate your sin. Nobody ever won the victory against sin by clinging to it in some small way and saying, well, I hate most of it, but I still like this one little part. No, no, no. If you want to win the fight against sin, you must hate it in all of its totality. You must set your mind against sin. You must take action against it. You must give no opportunity of the, for the flesh. That's what Paul will say in chapter 15, verse 14. Or chapter 15, verse 14. Don't, don't just attempt to stop sinning, but even stay away from the situations that entice you to sin. Don't, don't just say, well, if I get in that situation again, I won't do that. No, brother, don't even get into that situation again. 
Stay away from that situation. And then be persistent. The flesh doesn't stop enticing you when you defeat it one time. It will continue to nag you and tempt you all through your life and you must be vigilant to stay on guard against it. And friend, you have the Spirit of God within you so you can do just that. Work hard against sin. Pray. It says in the Scriptures in verse 26 that the Spirit prays for us. And friends, if the Spirit is praying for us, doesn't it, doesn't it imply that we also ought to be praying? Shouldn't we pray for ourselves and for one another? Don't be anxious for your salvation. Your victory over your sin is not your security. And that's good news because you will sin again. Your security is not what you have done. Your security is what the Spirit has done in applying the righteousness of Christ to your life to declare you to be righteous. The Spirit has made you safe in the Father and the Spirit is keeping you safe. If you are in Him, you are safe, you are secure. And then lastly, give thanks in worship. It's, it's, it's striking to me that, that in this chapter, there's not only no commands, there's no command that we need to worship and there's no command that we need to thank. And yet, at the end of the chapter, Paul virtually explodes into worship and gratitude. And friends, shouldn't that be our response as well? As we consider everything that the Spirit of God has done on our behalf, shouldn't we explode into worship and gratitude for that work for us? Do you often thank God for your salvation? Do you often thank God for your freedom from sin, for the cross, and for the presence of the Spirit? Oh, friend, don't, don't go to bed tonight. Don't leave corporate worship without giving thanks and worshiping for God's work on your behalf. Over these last nine months, we've spent 15 to 20 hours in corporate worship examining the wonders of this chapter It's a testimony to God's provision for us in sanctification. He has given us Himself. He has united us to Christ. He has adopted us into the family of God, making the Father our Father. He indwells us by the Spirit. All members of the triune God working not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. Oh, friend, let us contemplate that work, be obedient to that work, and rejoice in that work on our behalf. Oh, Father, thank You for this Spirit whom You have given us, this wondrous Spirit who works amazing things in our lives. Would He continue to transform us? Would He continue to change us? To Your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When on that day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere His people be. All glory be to Christ. 
All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule.